Robin here with many thanks to everyone that backed or shared the Leylines Kickstarter. I am so happy to report that we were successful and have raised the funds required to print the next volume of the book. Thank you for being a part of this adventure. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the MoCo Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. You may be familiar with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. As part of an ongoing series, every other episode we'll be exploring one of these 22 rules. You'll hear our connections, objections, exceptions, examples, and things you might not have considered when you first sat down to apply these principles. On today's episode, rule number six, what is your character good at, comfortable with? Throw the polar opposite at them, challenge them. How do they deal? So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. We've recommended this a million times already, but Brian McDonald's Invisible Ink has a chapter which is uh, dedicated to what he calls the personal hell exercise, which is where you throw uh, a worst-case scenario at your character in order to challenge them. And uh, apparently that's a, a really, really good way for him, at least, to uh, kind of refocus and, and really determine what it is that is a good foil and a good challenge for your character. It keeps things interesting. Yeah, and I looked at this and I, I really kind of thought to myself that it was it's so great because it really illustrates something that I'd always treated as being very elemental very the almost the point of writing that characters can't be thrown things that they are perfectly equipped to deal with because that's not interesting that's not engaging we like to see people who are challenged and if you are completely prepared for one thing then it's not a challenge and that can be a great payoff at the end where everything finally comes together but in the interim this is why no matter what if you're in the first 30 minutes of a movie the plan isn't going to work if you're in the first 10 minutes of a Law & Order episode, it's not going to be the person. Because if everybody got everything right, it would be short, it would be boring, and no one would go. But it's a great way of talking about this. This and McDonald's personal hell exercise are a great way of bringing that out and forcing people to think about it. Uh, what I like about this, uh, this topic is it really requires that you know your character in order to determine what it is that's their greatest challenge, their their personal hell, you really have to get into their headspace. And, I mean, if you have a simple character, you can have a simple uh, simple uh, challenge for them, which is perfectly suited to their weaknesses. But at the same time, uh, if you have a more complex character, just to going through this exercise, even if it doesn't end up on the page, is a really, really good way for you to get to know your characters and really kind of uh, learn what makes them tick. So I think this exercise has uh, value even even if it never ends up on the page. Well, maybe in some cases especially. It just because it does force people to think of their characters in a different context than maybe normal. Um, this is actually kind of relates to one of the things that I'll do for the creative writing birthday parties that I've run. 
is that I'll have the kids come up with characters and then I'll kind of play a game of like not 20 questions because you know who has the patience for 20 whole questions but like eight questions and one of them is always you know what are they really good at and why and the second one is what are they really terrible at and why and when they get to the uh, write a story portion of the challenge if they want an extra level if if uh just making a story up on its own is not challenging enough then i always say i want you to have them pursuing the thing that they want the most and in order to do that they have to face the thing that they're worst at so it's it's an exercise that's so simple that you know an eight-year-old can follow it but has so much uh potential to really expand a world and a character Absolutely, well, I, yeah. Go on. I was going to say, I think that it should come up in the story and that there should be, whether it's in one book or over the course of multiple arcs or however you work it in, there should be this element of facing what they find most difficult, most challenging, or most terrifying because that's the growth that the character will go through. I think that... It's good to know it, even if it's never going to come up, but that the best stories are the ones where it does come up. The one that I thought of, and I, I actually have an entire article on this on my uh, website, DishonorOnYourCow.com, is The Doctor from Doctor Who, because I feel like the 50th anniversary completely blew this rule like really badly and it pissed me off enough I wrote an article. Was that Day of the Doctor or uh that... yeah, Day of the Doctor. Mhm. Cuz so now we're going to get into deep spoiler territory. <laughs> In the Day of the Doctor they undo the time war or the, the consequences of the time war right, where, where all of the Daleks and all of the uh time lords time except Lord. for Doctor Who are gone. Well, and they'd already brought back the Daleks, which is a, a Completely different problem I have with the series where no one can ever stay dead yeah. unless they're a good guy. But in that, the Doctor had to pull the trigger. The Doctor looked at the destruction that the Time Lords and the Daleks were causing throughout the universe and every time zone. Um, time zone is not the word I wanted to use there, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and said, if this is let, if we let this go on, it will ruin the universe. And I love my people, and I hate them Daleks, but there's a lot of people in the universe who deserve to have a chance. And so he pulls the trigger, and he locks both of them permanently out of time and space. In the day of the Doctor, they go back and they say, well, except he didn't really. He even hid it from himself because of plots that he just moved Gallifrey. And that he can find it and he can be with his people again. Huzzah! And everyone is happy because the doctor's now got a purpose and can stop moping. Except I was sitting there in the theater going, no! Shout, shouting in my brain since I didn't want to get banned from one of the local theaters. Because to me, it, it absolutely took a story that, while off-screen succeeded at this rule and turned it into an on-screen story that took a big old dump all over it. That's interesting because uh, 
So, so were the I haven't seen this special. I've heard about it, but I don't know the details. Um, so, if the he just moved Gallifrey, and the other Time Lords are still around, were any of them out doing things in the galaxy? Well, no, because it's he moved it, and it's still outside of our normal space. It's in a pocket dimension. Um. Right. But and he doesn't know where the pocket dimension is, and they can't get out of the pocket dimension. But it's no longer completely locked out; it's just hidden. So well, they, I remember they... you talking about the reason that this bothered you so much is that it it took um, it took an element of the Doctor that he sort of is always the 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 character that can find the solution to the the problem that has no solution and forced him to come to grips with the idea that sometimes there are problems you can't solve right. and instead then went actually nope he can solve everything right the doctor is the clever boy who outthinks everyone in the room and comes up with the solution only he can think of in the same way that kirk in star trek is the the ballsy risk taker who through guile and charisma will get his uh, people out of any situation. And so both of them fundamentally need to be faced with a no-win scenario, one where Kirk can't guile or charm his way out and one where the doctor can't think his way out, where they are given you know a hard choice and made to push the button. And the time war was that. And that's what made, I think, the runs of Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant so compelling was that there was this fundamentally optimistic character who believed that you could, you could accomplish anything with enough time smarts and running who at one point in his life had been forced to put a gun to the head of his entire race and pull the trigger. And now it was not just brought back in the way Spock was brought back where when Spock came back, Kirk still knew Spock had died. Spock's death had still happened, and he was still changed by it. But all of a sudden, not just are the Time Lords back, but they're back in a way that they were never gone. So now he never needed to be that person and can immediately stop being that person. If they had... Go ahead. Oh, I, just, I actually had a really kind of interesting idea where where I would have uh, started um, Doctor Who when they did the reboot and they had Christopher Eccleston be the, the Doctor. I think it was the ninth Doctor. I actually had a completely different take on how I would have done the Time War, which is um, you, you kind of have it go, but, but when he pushes the button, he gets rid of the Daleks and he gets rid of the uh, time other Time Lords. It doesn't just remove them from time and space – because they're removed from time and space, all of the good that the Gallifreyans did, didn't never happened. Yeah, and I think that the reason they didn't do that is just because it was messy. Like, I, I don't see how it would be too messy. I mean, wh- what I would have done then is, is I could have would have mixed uh, mixed in the idea of Quantum Leap there, where inside his TARDIS, which exists outside of time and space, he has a record of how the universe would have been with if the Time Lords had existed. And so basically every week he looks at his TARDIS and he's like, what is the thing, the, the best thing 
left on my list of things to do that never happened because the Time Lords didn't exist. I'm going to go do it. Me and my yeah. companion are going to go do that. And that that would have been the, well, he's got a mission. He has to make up for the good of an entire species. I think that would have been compelling television, but... Well, and I think and the way I would have done it, truthfully, I would have done the exact same 50th anniversary episode, except at the end he still has to pull the trigger. Right, yeah. The, Make it There explicit. is no solution. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it is that, that, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary. Or tell a completely different 50th anniversary and leave the time war intact. Right. But... Yeah, it it bothered me because it it not just put something back that I think this series was better off with it gone, but it did so in a way that completely wiped out the need for and the presence ultimately I think for that character growth. And yeah, we need to tell the story of what our heroes do when they are faced with their exact opposite and the doctor had had that and it scarred his soul forever until the 50th anniversary now it's gone so i I guess they went through this exercise they they uh did it for you know what what was that eight years they they held to it and then i guess one of the writers decided that they didn't like that exercise with this character and undid it (laughs) Well, more, I think it's that Stephen Moffat wants those big emotional moments, but he doesn't think about how it's going to affect things that have gone before or come since. I actually feel like that's kind of common in his, uh, the other, the new Sherlock. Yeah, I've heard that that's... I, I've, on, I've only actually, seen season two, uh, season one, rather. I haven't seen season two or season three, but I've heard that that's so. I was a... I, am a huge fan of seasons one and two and was pretty disappointed with the third season because I guess I feel like there was an attempt to kind of do this exercise where it was, well, what if you have problems that Sherlock can't solve? But then instead it was sort of like Sherlock's conclusion was, well, I'm not clever enough for this. So brute force it instead. And then there's no consequences really to brute forcing. Right. And that's when the things are kind of like, Oh, we're making this huge deal about how horrible it is that he did this and we're shipping him off. And then it's like, Oh, we need him again. Turn that turn. Forget, forget that those consequences are there. We need Sherlock because Sherlock is the only one that can do what he can. So it, it, it basically said, you know, when the going gets tough, Sherlock just gets, Sherlock just acts like any other thug or gets lucky. And I guess it it doesn't say anything. He's not he's never forced as a character to face down any consequences of of those actions. So that's not a very effective use of this uh, exercise. Right. And it doesn't seem like he's learning anything from coming up against these weaknesses. I mean, there's occasions where you think, oh, maybe he's learned a valuable lesson. And then it turns out it was all just a joke. So you're like, okay, that moment of character act, character development clearly didn't actually happen. So what was the point of it? Of you know, Sherlock's a dick, the end, and and everyone lets him get away with it. That's that's not. I don't know. It's, to me, it just it wasn't a very satisfying series because it took the things that Sherlock was 
good at and removed them and didn't do anything interesting with the void that it left. That sounds really yeah. frustrating. <laughs> and it, it's, it, it is. It's common in his work where he, he builds up to the moment and the moment is cool, but the connective tissue um, f- falters and fails or is left behind or is not terribly thought out. And the problem is that that connective tissue is called the rest of the show. Well, it sounds like it sounds like he comes up with this moment, and he wants such a reversal that it is not just the antithesis of the character; it's the antithesis of the theme and the antithesis of the whole uh, meta universe of the show. It it, it defeats be. its own purpose. It can be, yeah. I, I guess there's some some people do explosions for the sake of explosions. Um, I feel like a lot of the work that I've seen lately is emotional explosions for the sake of emotional explosions. And after a while, both start to feel a little bit empty. Which is a shame because I felt like the first two series uh, seasons were just so well done and so gripping and exciting and interesting and had a great balance of, of weaknesses and strengths. And then it something happened it just felt like it sort of went off the rails or they ran out of material or or something along those lines. One of the examples I was going to bring up later but works now is, uh, here we go, what is Superman's greatest weakness? Anybody? I mean, other than the physical, like, kryptonite element? Yeah. But that, yeah, it's not kryptonite, it's the acceptance of things that he can't save. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely a good one in terms of kind of that ethos. Um, back in the 80s, they decided that Superman's greatest weakness was magic. Uh, in as much as, like, apparently where, where phys- the, the physical world, with the exception of kryptonite, is, like, basically nothing to a Kryptonian, magic works super well on all of them. And the idea there was is, well, Superman needs a weakness, and so far he doesn't have one. And this makes the most sense in the comic book world, but there's a reason why we haven't seen a uh, a mainstream film where it's Superman versus magic. It doesn't fit with the ethos. So, kind of creating that. What what are they worst at? I, I agree that the uh, mental exercise of accepting what you can and cannot save is a lot lot better. It's a, probably a more effective uh, answer for this exercise. But sometimes when you come up with your exercise, it doesn't make an effective story. No, and I get that, but I would say to the Superman magic thing that the answer should also not be dumb. I and agree. That, <laughs> and that the idea that what Superman needs to have a problem with is wizards is dumb, and I'm actually getting angry, and I've never heard that. And I don't <laughs> doubt that it's real, because the moment you said it, I saw that pitch meeting. Right. But that's really... Just phenomenally stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, like it, it's 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 stupid in that really kind of obvious, clever sort of like 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 you're right. There was a pitch meeting and somebody said that, and then an editor was like, "That's it, you're, you're perfect," but only because they were having trouble, you know, challenging their main character in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, Superman fighting Merlin. That kind of get that that's kind of exciting, but only in that most superficially this is dumb and I know it way. I think I'd prefer Superman versus Voldemort. 
Oh yeah, I mean, there's just the he could just go fight the great wizards of history, Superman versus Gandalf. There's there's so much dumb there that you could there's have fun so with. There's so much dumb there, Houdini. but it is ultimately dumb as hell. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I just, I, I yeah, I, okay. So I guess maybe that is my example of one time they tried this exercise and just failed right. completely. I guess I feel like face. when you make it a physical thing, like. <laughs> Saying okay, someone's not good at swimming. Okay. Wasn't that the plot of Unbreakable? But the, it wasn't that he was bad at swimming. It that was that there was this uh, fear of whether or not there was he was special. Well, is I think ultimately kind of what that is like. I think it, it, you was... can tie a physical issue like Jaws. A man is afraid of the water. Right. But he and is I... the, he, the fear is what ultimately. Uh, he overcomes, not the water itself. Right. What underlies Bruce Willis's fear of water in Unbreakable is that there, I always read it as, and this could just be fan wanked, but I always read it as that there is this subconscious part of him that knows that he's unbreakable, but that water is what is his kryptonite. And so it's that fear of this is the thing that can kill me not an actual fear of water. He's not actually vulnerable to water. He just spazzes out because the fear gets the better of him. I always read it that way. Yeah, Uh, or even that he is vulnerable to water, and because of it, he spazzes out. Because I spazz out when I'm confronted with things that I'm terrified will kill me. That's a perfectly human reaction. Um. But yeah, I don't mind it being a physical thing so long as that is also tied into the emotions that the physical thing brings out. Yeah, that's but, what I mean. Is if it's purely physical, then you end up with Superman versus Wizards. But right. if it's something where it's actually tied to uh, an emotional beat, yeah, then I think it actually works because there's something... But I guess that's sort of ties in with the idea of, you know, that there are different kinds of um, challenges that a hero will face, that man versus self, man versus world, man versus, you know, you're familiar with that that yeah. list of, of yeah. typical what the hero will be against. That could be just my personal bias that I particularly enjoy man versus self narratives. I think ultimately we, uh, th- th- that's the one that rings truest with most people. That because in, ultimately, um, while people do have to overcome physical challenges in their life, the one people struggle with daily is the, uh, do I have the willpower to do the right thing in this situation? Can I be a better person through through personal will? Things like that. Um, and I think ultimately, like we were talking about in Unbreakable, the water is, I mean, you can, you can argue that it's a metaphor, but ultimately I believe that his personal hell exercise has a lot more to do with his view of himself and his uh, family's view of him. Right. How well, he's and viewed. I like to talk about the pure physical kryptonite thing for a moment. I would love to see a Superman story where it's revealed Superman never buys Lois emeralds because emeralds are too they, – they just creep him out. He sees them <laughs> out of the corner of his eye, and he flinches because they remind them of kryptonite. That'd be kind of funny. Like, he has that, a subconscious, immediate, like, response. It's visceral, almost. Right. He sees a little glint in in her ear, and there's just that adrenaline moment. And that's so he, he 
something to tie it into emotion and fear. But the Superman story I've always wanted to see is a Superman story where he deals with someone having cancer, someone who is is close to him, who has been meaningfully established, and who who over the course of a ser- a, a series of comics dies, not in an attack not in any way preventable by Superman, but that he has to watch this human story slowly come to a natural end and know he can't do anything about it. Well, in the original uh, Superman, not not Man of Steel, but in the original Superman in the 70s, I thought that was, uh, they hinted that there was that kind of arc when his father dies. Because uh, in the new one, his father is killed by uh, plot tornado, right. uh, but in oh. the in the old by, one, by he's... illogical Kansas plot tornado. Right. Right. But in by... the old one, he has oh. some sort of disease. Pa, pa Kent has some sort of, uh, I think it's a heart condition, and just passes away. So you kind of get the yeah. sense that 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 tempers how he views his mission of uh, saving other people in Metropolis after that. Because as a teenager, he had to watch his dad die, and he had no power. Well, and but I think that there's. There is something even more interesting in this story where it's not sudden because everyone is shocked and horrified with sudden unexpected deaths. But over that time period where they that person has come to accept it and Superman has to come to accept it on his own terms, I think would be very instructive sure, and very a interesting. kind of grieving process when it's right. an extended loss right. rather than, or like Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, some... I know when, when my grandfather had Alzheimer's and he had that for five years, it was a really strange experience um, to see at the funeral all the different ways that people related to the man because I was so young but a lot of my cousins were much older so the person that they had lost was completely different than the person I had lost Right. and someone going through the experience of essentially losing a person when they're still alive is a very different uh, experience than a sudden death loss yeah I I think that it would give and it it makes me sound incredibly twisted that I'm sitting here going You're yes, a writer, I you're hope, entitled. To... I hope someone close to Superman gets Alzheimer's. It's okay but, because he's a fictional character. Right. You're not but wishing that, that on but, anybody in real life. But that that slow acceptance and that that learning to let go while someone is still alive, that's something that I would like to see Superman grapple with. Because ultimately Superman is representative of the best of us. And the most, the most noble and godlike instincts and aspirations of mankind. And so to watch him deal with something that is ultimately at the core of the human experience like that, I think, would – that would give us a look into this, the character of Superman that we don't often get to see because we've seen him mourn. For sudden deaths, and we've seen him mourn for preventable deaths. I'm not sure I've ever seen him mourning for a a not sudden, but also completely unpreventable death. The inevitable. Yeah. And even, 
if there's a character that needs to really face his own mortality, it's Superman because he faces it on such a different level than we do. And that's why stories like Kingdom Come where you look at it and it's like, yeah, Superman does not age like the rest of us. He will die, but he's not going to die soon. And what does that do to how he views his relationship with mankind? That's what makes that so good. And you get a hint of it in Kingdom Come because Kingdom Come is set in a, in a future. Um, but you don't get to see it in its immediacy. Right. Uh, and so that to, that to me is the the perfect Superman story for what he the the core opposite of who who he is and what he is good at. The evil he can't fight is time. Yeah. Uh like on the opposite end of the spectrum the the superhero uh the, the Superman distant future, uh, him being old and everybody else being gone comic that I am familiar with is Superman at Earth's End, which is everything you just said gone horribly wrong. Um, but, but basically the premise is Superman is super old and everybody he knows is gone and there happen to be twin clones of Hitler and uh, he renounces not killing people and uses a gun. So there's that. So that's a great demonstration of how you can have a good idea and a good intention, but the uh, execution of that idea still matters. Right, right. Well, I was thinking like that. Maybe they were coming at it with the same idea, which was, uh, oh well, what what really takes Superman out of this element? What 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 is his greatest weakness? And it's his connection to humanity. And what way to uh, starkly uh, show uh, how it's a weakness, except by taking away everyone he loves and making him fight the worst human ever twice? And like you can see how it goes out of hand. So, yeah, I, I those think... good intentions lead. Yes, right. It's. Still have to be very careful. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah. As with everything, execution definitely matters. Um, uh, There's actually a uh, line I'm thinking here with, uh, which is from Mass Effect, uh, when they're talking about the Quarians who have their... uh, their suits to keep themselves from from being exposed to germs and dying because they have very weak immune systems. And one of the Krogans, I can't remember which one, uh, says, oh, that makes sense, because anything that isn't challenged dies. And I feel like that this, this rule is basically that. You need to challenge your characters or they will wither on your page. Yeah. I think there's also, uh, it, it helps with stakes. Because if you're... Um, challenging a character in a way that the audience already knows that they're good at there's not really a lot of concern as to whether or not that's going to work out you already know what the answer is and the answer is yes and sometimes it can be fun to see someone excel at what they do and i actually do feel like that it is necessary to have at least a little bit of success in oh uh, i agree in a that that to balance out failure i think we've talked a little bit about that um but having them do something that you know that they're bad at raises the stakes because it raises the possibility of failure. Do we yeah. have good examples of of people who have to get out of their comfort zone who are faced with something they're really, really bad at and succeed? Well, I think 
in I, this is this is the fundamental underpinning of most action movies. This is the fundamental underpinning of thing. You know, John McClane is a is a alcoholic New York City cop who suddenly has to stealth through buildings and fight international terrorists. Even something as simple as uh, Harry Dresden, where it is um, in uh, one of the books, he has to go through a book and not use fire magic. And that's, that's very simple, and it's not really a, a deep emotional core, but it's been established at that point in like 10 books that Harry is fi- – fire magic is his – you know, basic fallback, oh crap. And all of a sudden it's not using fire magic, having to think outside the box and grow and learn. Mm. Uh, for me, I think uh, Groundhog Day is probably my best example here in as much as uh, uh, the per- uh, the main character's personal hell, uh, Phil, uh, his, at, at first you think it's just being a decent human being to other people. Um, but slowly, I think uh, it becomes realized that his personal hell is just living with what a wretched person he is, to the point where he has to change, otherwise he can't escape. And I think that's kind of the the main crux in that one. His personal hell is being with himself. That's not exactly uh, facing something that I guess. Th- I guess it is in a little way facing what you're not good at if you're not good at self awareness. Yeah. And you have to become self-aware, then yes, it actually is. I rescind the argument I was going to make, but in the past. Well, I think he's he's not good at being good to other people because he has no practice being good to himself. So, that's my argument. I'm sticking to it. But yeah, I feel like that's... It, and this can be, as we said, this can be very simple or this can be very complex. It depends on what level you want to have them go against. But uh, the other, another example from the Dresden Files series is um, that he is not very political. He is not very good at politics. And so he... But he is constantly being faced with political situations that make him grow in that area. And now, without spoiling, he is in an incredibly political space where he has to learn and think and watch his step. Yeah. And I guess if if that's something he's been trying to avoid or something that he's bad at doing... That's... One, I think... Yeah, I think it definitely is. He's He has specifically talked about how he doesn't like it. He he avoided. He's talked about how he avoids the uh, White Council for a number of reasons. One of which is the politics and the backstabbing. I'm kind of curious if uh, how pol- politic averse uh, Jim Butcher himself is. If if you know if Dresden is kind of a proxy for himself, where he's like, I don't want to be involved in this politics, or if uh, he's actually rather politically uh, adroit, which means that he's able to create that environment which is uncomfortable for his character more easily. I wonder which side of the spectrum he falls on. I'd, I'd I don't estimate know. That's a good probably question. a mixture of both. 
because I think that almost all characters are little pieces of ourselves, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily have to be on only one side of the issue. It's fascinating for me to read uh, Calvin and Hobbes again, be knowing now what I know about Bill Watterson's struggle with the syndicate and and uh, whether or not to merchandise the way that Jim Davis kind of merchandised. And Calvin and Hobbes constantly have arguments on both sides of the issue about this struggle between what's marketable, what's accessible, what makes um, bajillions of money, what, what is art, what is high art, what is low art. Like There's a constant debate going on. And the thing that's so brilliant about it is that he never clearly comes down on one side or the other. Um, there, are, I think there are some biases that are implied, but often because Calvin has one opinion that it was probably opposed to Bill Watterson's opinion, it highlights things in, in a very different way and it lets you just sort of think about it. So to me, it always came across more as he was actually having the debate more than I think a lot of people uh, give him credit for because well, he sort of has this uh, reputation as this curmudgeonly hermit. I love the way you said it because I know exactly what you mean, but when you said Bill Watterson struggles with the syndicate, my immediate thought was he's fighting assassins. Yes, that that is yeah, that's the other syndicate. Right. That, that's the I get my syndicate in the that 90s. after. Yes. I get my syndicates mixed up. It's a it's a problem. It's well, but no, it's yeah. Um I think yeah, I agree that it's probably I think that he knows a lot about it and he can construct it and that he just might find it, you know, that kind of politics personally objectionable. But he knows that it exists. Well, it's hard and, to write that kind of uh, experience when you don't have any experience in it. Right. That goes back to the write what you know adage. Well, you said he doesn't come down on one side or another with it. And maybe he hadn't truly decided, you know. It's, yeah. it's more than possible that he was splitting that hair because he saw the merits and flaws in both sides of the argument. Yeah. And I think ultimately a lot of a lot of writing and creation is people having arguments with themselves as a means to grow. We right. challenge our characters because we are challenging ourselves. Our characters struggle with things because on some level, whether we're aware of it or not, we struggle with those things. So we're all creating these little echoes and then playing out these different scenarios so that we can figure out how we really do feel about something. Well, and I think that that's true in a lot of cases, but I also think that there's a lot of times where somebody will say that this is this character's struggle, and in order to tell that story, I have to present that, and that it may not be something you're dealing with anymore, but that the knowledge of, of how that struggle can go definitely informs a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Or and it can also be symbolic. I'm not saying that right. in or that a character is a creator, but I do think that every character has a a seed that is inside a creator somewhere. Whether it was whether it was grown there in order to explore something, or whether it's there on an unconscious level. I they I mean they don't come from nowhere. Right. They don't they don't exist in a vacuum. Um. I got another quote here, which I kind of feel is uh, applicable here, and which is, uh, like people for their virtues, love them for their flaws. And I think this is a really good uh, way to express those flaws. You get to really kind of explore what it is that, that uh, the things they falter at, and that's 
that's where I think a lot of people fall in love with uh, some of the characters that have become prevalent in our popular culture. Oh, yeah, it's for their flaws more than for anything else. Like, I think uh, people like Sherlock Holmes, his uh, deductive or abductive reasoning skills. What they love about him is his little neuroses and his inability to uh, not annoy his best friend and things like that. Yeah, I agree. Without that social awkwardness, he is a lot less interesting. If he's just able to go out and be, you know, a normal dude catching beers with Watson after work and is also a super genius, then he's a lot harder to to like because he's too perfect. Well, he's not a human at that point. He's a cipher. Right. Which can also be used, but... Right. I think the the interest element is real key there. Is is not necessarily having flaws is not necessarily going to make a character more likable, but it will make them more interesting. Um, if only because it introduces a variation to what is otherwise homogeneity. Because if someone is good at everything, then they're homogeneous in in uh, their skill set. Whereas if someone is good at most things except X, Y, and Z, or even bad at most things, but has some talents, like you, that, that, that having a fly in the ointment creates interest because then it creates questions and possibilities and risk that don't exist when things are just homogenous. Um, how important do you guys think uh, regression is to uh, this kind of arc? Uh, when you're faced by this sort of uh, personal weakness, uh, sometimes I find it can be very, very useful for to have the character fail, at least initially, when uh, coming into uh, contact with it. Uh, the best example of this I have is Prince Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. In Season 2, they definitely threw him what would be his his uh, worst nightmare in as much as his sister became involved in the hunt for the Avatar and was half hunting him as well, half tempting him back into uh, into the Fire Nation. And at the end of Season 2, spoiler for those of you who haven't seen it, um, he he chooses to side with his, uh, his sister, who's clearly not got either his nor the world's best interests in mind. He, he regresses. He, he uh, gives in to that temptation. Do you guys think that that has its place? Uh, in this in this kind of narrative, I definitely think so. I think that that's even part of the the natural arc of a character is that they shouldn't succeed the first time they encounter it because, like Robin said, then there's no sense of stakes. Then there is no tension when they encounter it again, whether or not they will succeed. Well, and there's if no you have growth. right, if you it's like if you have someone who says. If we never see Indiana Jones being terrified of snakes, if the first time he sees a snake, he just, you know, I'm going to keep cool, I'm going to keep cool, I'm going to keep cool, and he goes through it, then we go, okay, he can't have really been that afraid of snakes. But the, when Indiana Jones sees snakes for the first time and he freaks the hell out, then we go, okay, now it's meaningful when he has to work through it. Right. Um, I think that's kind of interesting because we were, we were talking about how it can't just be the physical. Ultimately, I think in Last Crusade, what they express is rather than snakes being his weakness, and they, they highlight on the snake thing again at the start where they have uh, uh, River Phoenix as the young Indiana Jones fall into a crate full of snakes. Before that, he wasn't afraid of them. 
but ultimately the thing that he uh, he, he really uh, struggles with is working with and possibly losing his father. And that's much more representative of his kind of personal uh, uh, struggle. Yeah. In that he is willing to go through the much more surface level phobia in order to um, save his father and not deal with that much deeper phobia of, of loss of family. Yeah. And not to say that he wasn't courageous to, enough to let his father die, but um, just, just in as much as that um, there's more going on under the surface than a fear of snakes with Indiana Jones. Right. Although I think really... it is that there is a very legitimate also fear of snakes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess that, that the fear of snakes isn't really a weakness of Indiana Jones. It's a quirk. Yeah. It, it's a good quirk. It's a humanizing quirk, but ultimately it's not really a weakness because no Nazis ever come at him with a pile of snakes. Which is a you know lost opportunity on their right? part, really, when you think about it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I would say it is still a weakness. It is just not... It's not his core weakness. It's not the weakness of Indiana Jones. It's just a weakness of Indiana Jones. Right. I think that ultimately the humanizing piece of it is what's important. And it's not just because, you know, nobody is perfect, although there has that piece in it. It's because of the reactions that come out of having to face something that you are terrible at. That coming with that is a natural insecurity or fear or anxiety or any of these number of emotions that come out of, of anything when you have to face down something that you haven't done before or you know you're bad at or that you know you're intimidated by. And in that way, we are given a an access point to relate to a character very strongly because no matter what it is that they're bad at, that they're facing down, everyone has dealt with a situation where they had to do something that they didn't want to do or didn't know how to do and either came out of it or didn't, but either way probably learned something Mm -hmm. and doing this to a character helps give us um, signposts on how we too can face down something that we don't know and conquer it. Uh, that reminds me of uh, kind of kind of going off on a completely different tangent is when you create characters for role playing games. Um, one of the things that we've house ruled. I'm not sure if it's in the uh, core book for Legend of the Five Rings or not, but I've definitely house ruled that you have to take at least one disadvantage because those are the things that make your characters interesting. Whereas. Uh, a lot of the other uh, things, the advantages and the uh, cool samurai skills, th- those are fun, but they don't actually characterize your character at all. And yeah. uh, so I think that was it. Uh, Matt, you introduced us to a game called Little Fears, where yeah. like a huge part of the character creation was just, what are you afraid of? Yeah, that's a he- that's a big part of it. And, and little things that are not just what are you afraid of, but those great humanizing touches of... My safe space is. The one place I never go is. The one thing I fear I'm afraid of more than anything is. And that's the, that's the character creation. That's, that's everything. 
I think they have a lot of value, not just for creating characters for like an RPG, but I've definitely used these uh, these kind of questions to create characters for other thi other works, uh, at least as a starting zone. I mean, I, I kind of gloss over that now because I have something in mind and I just go. But particularly back in high school when I was first learning how to create characters, these were great tools. So, I mean, it's codified and it's good, so I think it's a good starting place. One thing that I've kind of been playing with a bit in the most recent chapter is uh, when you kind of have a conflict between uh, two characters that have strengths and weaknesses that overlap really badly with each other. So not only are you kind of having a, a challenge of forcing a character to do something that they're you know bad at or good at but it also becomes a character conflict between two other people because they're both having to adapt to someone else's style which is drastically different from their own i think for a writer this is not only a good tool just in general for character building but it's also a great tool for keeping your own worlds and writing fresh for yourself because i know that Especially for people that have worked on a project for a really long time, one of the really common complaints I've heard is that it's just writing is not fresh for them anymore. It's not interesting or exciting anymore. And I think taking a character and reassessing where they're at and what their strengths and weaknesses are and going through this exercise with them uh, is a great way to give yourself uh, fresh air on a story. Well, and I, I wonder, you, know, you brought up the, the Jim Butcher example where it was sort of like okay what does harry dresden do in situation a blows it up with fire how about situation b more fire like at some point saying okay no more fire i'm, I'm going to force myself to think of things that are not the easy methodology and see what happens i, I actually have really always admired jim butcher because it seems like whenever Harry starts getting into a pattern where the story starts to get a little formulaic. He'll do something that will completely change up the way that Harry, the challenges that Harry has to deal with and the resources that he has to deal with. And then suddenly we, we get to see him in a totally different context that keeps it fresh again. Well, and I think you just brought up something really interesting in that it can and almost has to over a long series, change over time. That by the time you are six books in or 700 comics in, you know, however long, you should look back and the things that your character is afraid of and the worst of and the worst at should not be exactly the same as when you started. Mm -hmm. Because that means that they haven't grown. And that's not the the point you that you have been missing part of the point of telling a story with a character, which is to show them in their growth and in their inevitable having to confront real issues that make them change. And uh, that's the like you said, that's one of the best things that uh, Jim Butcher does is Harry at the end of. Um, the most recent book, whose name is now completely escaping me, Skin Game, is a really very different person than Harry was at the beginning of the first book. In that the things that he is afraid of have changed. The things that he's good at have deepened and matured. His outlook and his impulses 
have changed. Not so dramatically that you look at him and go, he's no longer true to his character, but in such a way that he is true to who he is while also being true to all of the things that he has gone through. Well, I think that's great with a good character. What you can do is every time you do this exercise, it changes them fundamentally enough that the next time you run this exercise, the answer is completely different. Yeah. And you can just keep doing it with a good character over and over again, get a different answer every time, and still have a great story. And those answers will all be probably thematically linked in that there is a way to... That there, that there is a very organic way that they have moved from, you know, one to two to three, but that, yeah, that like you often have when you look back on the last 10 years of your life, if you're sitting and you're pausing at 30 and looking at who you were at 20, you're going to see a very different person. I mean, it doesn't even have to necessarily be that long. I remember going through an old deviant art uh, post that I had done and seeing a comment and being like, who wrote that? Oh, wow, that was me. Holy crap. I have a completely different opinion on that yeah. than I did before. And almost to the point where I om- I'm, I'm sort of like, God, I can't believe that in a, a couple years my opinion has changed so much. So I think it, it can be a, a thing that happens pretty rapidly, too. Well, yeah, and I, I, I picked 10 years because it was easy, but I really do personally think that there is almost no greater growth in a person's life if they if they followed the track to college. There is no greater period of growth than 22 to 25 for most people. And for me, it's been 25 on. <laughs> I don't well, feel it, like I grew at all. Well, and it doesn't have to be. And it's it could just be that I'm looking back and, uh, you know, putting putting my own growth but i feel like looking at it for me that 22 to 25 that time that i spent abroad on my own with much more limited access to any kind of safety net that that was the oh it's real now i have to be an adult now (laughs) perspective shift time for me Mm -hmm. to the point where when i came back and i went to law school at 25 you know, it was only I was only a couple of years older than the people who were coming right out of undergrad, but in perspective, I was so much closer to the people who were coming back in their thirties or their forties. Well, what you do can have a big impact on on how that is perceived. And actually that kind of links to this whole issue is that you're wanting to show that shift in perspective in a character. And you can't really do that unless that character is facing something that forces them to grow it yeah. forces them to have that moment of oh it's real now um and change i really liked actually one of the to go back to your your phrasing um we were talking you were talking about strengths and fears for the harry dresden character yeah and you said that his strengths had matured and i think that that is is such a great a great thing to keep in mind is that you a character's strengths aren't necessarily going to change but they're going to gain more finesse and uh, range of application and maturity in how to use those strengths. Whereas fears, we may always have certain knee-jerk reactions to certain types of fears, but fear is actually far more malleable 
as we change because you know someone might start out having a fear of public speaking and work up to it and work up to it and work up to it and they still might get you know nervous jitters before they go up and speak in front of a crowd but once they get more experience doing that it's not something that is going to be crippling in the way that it might have been before they ever started saying okay I want to I want to learn how to do this so I think it's sort of an interesting contrast that while strengths broaden fears change and in some cases fears i don't know if they they change completely but they maybe deepen in a different way you get to access more involved ways that a particular fear might touch uh certain issues well and i think that it's another difference is that a fear can disappear like my stepdad likes to tell the story of how he beat uh being afraid of heights uh, went to Airborne Ranger School. Mm-hmm. And he's not afraid of heights anymore because you jump out of a couple of perfectly good planes and all of a sudden <laughs> uh, you're either okay with it or you're not. But that, that he got over it, that you can get over fears if for some fears. But your strengths will never completely go away, but your fears can can be conquered. In that, and and that's your strengths will never be completely beaten, but your fears can be conquered. Uh, one interesting uh, exercise that was was uh, brought up in the uh, in Invisible Ink was uh, he had this section where he would give you a character, and you had to come up kind of off the top of your head what you think their greatest challenge would be. What, what is the thing they're bad at? What is the thing that would be most challenging as from a character standpoint for them? Do you think it'd be useful to kind of provide a few examples here? Yeah. Kind of a, a, a mini challenge, a warm-up to our regular uh, head-to-head challenge. Should I just provide an example, maybe? Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what... Um... So basically what, it would, what I would do is, is I would say, I would give you a character... And you would come up with a scenario in which they have to face either their greatest fear or their greatest challenge. What is their personal weakness or personal hell that they would have to go through uh, just from uh, what is the antithesis of their character? What What is a good foil? What is a good uh, arc for them to go through to, to overcome their weakness? Okay. So uh, the first one that comes to mind is, say, uh, a man who is perpetually poor, downtrodden, down on his luck. What would be his greatest, uh, I guess, moral, intellectual, characterful challenge? He finds a million dollars in a suitcase. Mm-hmm. It's and either it's not labeled. Or not a million dollars, because that's that's out of the realm of. Let's say he finds twenty thousand dollars in an envelope, and it's either not labeled or it is labeled because they present different elements of the challenge. Because then that moral element is. He's he has always been poor. He has always wanted money. He's always dreamed of an unexpected windfall. Now he has it, but he has some sense no matter what, that if he keeps this, he is keeping it from someone. Yeah, you could also imply it in terms of like a theft or something. Like there's sort of a, 
do you take advantage of this situation or not? Do you, either of you want to come up with one? Someone who is very proud of their athletic or physical ability. Well, there's always to take that away in some way, um, an injury or... Uh... I think regardless of how it happens, the trick is to show that that athleticism that he put so much emphasis on is not as important. So I would even do something along the lines of, say, he's a big football star. For some reason, the United States is just no longer interested in football, and they really, really love, like, luge. And suddenly he is just not a star anymore. Curling is where it's at. Right, yeah. Chess like, meets. Th- th- that would be where I would go with it, is, is suddenly uh, the society no longer values him for what he values himself for. I think that's uh, where I would go with it. You could also play up a kind of a competitive element if it's sort of a uh, king of the hill kind of aspect to it. Um, instead of making the society as a whole devalue, you could always introduce competition. Someone or some group that shows them up at every turn. Right. Um, the Those damn curlers. <laughs> the... the uh, uh, <laughs> isn't that the plot of Dodgeball? Uh, kind of. Um, but You could also put it into a situation where uh, athleticism has absolutely no benefit to you. Something that is a purely a challenge of the mind. An intellectual or of challenge. An yeah. intellectual challenge. I mean, because it is saying talk about weaknesses. So we know that this guy is strong in the athletics, but is he good with foreign languages? Or, like, putting him in an environment where he has to rely on his wits, his knowledge, what he learned in fifth grade history class, like that kind of thing could also be an interesting challenge. And yeah. It could be as, as normal or as wacky as you wanted. I, something along the lines of, you know, you end up abandoned in a foreign country um, or you end up back in time somewhere, forward in time. You could do a science fiction where no one uses the physical body anymore and the idea of wandering around in your meat suit is disgusting. Or like, you know, there's... He goes to the Wally future. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would be king in the Wally future. All he would have to do is push over everybody's hover, hover seat. Well, but depends. Pre-rediscovering the need to walk or post. Yeah. Because I, I got the feeling pre that it was considered very weird and very... Sure. You're, you're doing what? Either way, though, I think, you know, he has a distinct advantage in that situation. But, but you've got a point, though. It's really, really good to kind of juxtapose it. I mean, the real obvious one, and I think the one that I've seen, which was from The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which was, um, you know, athletic, super uh, fly guy, gets into uh, an accident, and uh, that kind of strips away that athletic ability, and he discovers that um, the way to uh, kind of bring himself back up, uh, which he can no longer do through the physical expression of himself, he has to do spiritually. And that that was the premise of that film. So, uh, that one's I, kind of right on. I do feel like the that this sort of exposes an interesting difference between the personal hell idea and this Pixar rule. I think there's a subtle difference here. Okay. Because the personal hell is much more keyed into desire and fear. Whereas this Pixar rule is talking about what are your weaknesses? 
So taking away like with the, the sports example, it's taking away the desire or the reward for the for the thing that they're good at. Whereas the weak talking about someone's weaknesses is actually a slightly different um, process. They're linked, but I don't think that they're the same. You see what I'm I'm getting at? Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Um, I think one of them is more uh, external and one of them is more internal. Yeah, situation versus. Uh, skill you can alter the situation in a variety of ways but that doesn't necessarily highlight on a lack of skill a skill right. can be more the task that you must complete you know, like the the athletic jock must uh for some reason ace a spelling bee or a chess match or some sort of history paper like something where it's just the situation hasn't changed. They're not no longer, you know, all these other things. They're not stripped of their powers. They're just put into a situation wherein they have to use things that they may not have cultivated as much as the things they're strong at. And there's a lot of films that explore concepts exactly like this. Well, a lot of comedies in particular, because I think also, it brings out humor. Yeah. There, there's no the reason fish you can't out of water, them. yeah. Yeah. I was just saying that there's no reason you can't subvert the expectation either. There's no reason why an athlete can't be really good at a spelling bee. Yeah. No, there isn't. I just when you're giving a basic archetype and, and that's what you're playing up. Right. I don't I don't mean to play the stereotype, I'm just with the information available. I'm making the assumption that the physical is the strength here. Right. Did you have one, Matt? Or no, you just did one. Did you have one, Robin? Like, well, yes, I did have one because I said it. That's right. <laughs> I should have said that. Just played up with Corey's thing and then claimed that Matt had not done one. That there would have go. been a wise thing to do. There, there's no way we could have tested to see if that was true or not. <laughs> right. It's not like we're recording everything we're saying at every yes, moment. At every moment. Um, how about a, a compulsive liar? Oh, okay. well, I think that we've seen that in the classic Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar. We have, but let's come up with something else. All right. He can't not lie. All right. And in um, series and, and, and an exploration of the increasing consequences of his inability to not lie. I think I would go the opposite direction, which is no one can tell the truth to him. So everyone is everyone is forced to lie to him, even yes. about the most simple of things. Yes. So he kind of sees the damage of of that constant lying, the complete living in a world of complete misinformation, but just for him. I think that's what where I would go with it. Yeah, that's pretty good too. Are we ready for stuff in the middle? I guess so. They announced uh, today that the Batgirl comic is going to um, get a new creative team and she's going to get a new uh, outfit. I saw that outfit and I am super encouraged by it. Yeah. I'm I looked at hesitant that. because DC where these days makes me hesitant about everything, but the costume I feel is really, really encouraging and a pleasant change. Yeah. The costume I looked at and said holy crap that is probably the best costume I have ever seen in one of the big mainline comics. 
And if you get if if you haven't seen it by the time we're listening to this podcast, I encourage you to find a, a picture of it because it's amazing. It's a leather jacket with a button sna- with a snap detachable cape, pants, boots, and a belt. And yet it is it's so perfectly bat family. It's so perfectly the character, and it's so perfectly an actual functional-looking set of clothings that it just about made me explode with joy. You, me, and Liz Staley all. I guess I'm going to have to see this costume. Oh my god, It's so practical. You look at it and you're like, yeah. I could see someone wearing that both for protection, functionality, uh, coolness factor. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I sent you, Corey, I sent you guys the superhero stuff that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I'm picturing costumes in this, they drew what I'm picturing. Obviously bat-themed, and I kind of fall into the Incredibles no capes rule. No capes. But they're snaps. They're like, like, you know, the that does, jacket closure snaps. Yeah, that so does if they neatly caught, solve the problem of getting sucked into a jet airplane. Right. Like, if a jet airplane, airplane, it's a flying tree. If a jet <laughs> airplane picks it up, the cape goes away and you're fine. Although if Batgirl is is swinging around near a jet turbine, she's probably also got other interesting problems besides, oh crap, my cape is gone. Well, and the plane's still screwed, but other than that. Right, but... She's not going to choke to death. And yeah, just simple things like the gloves have snaps to tighten them down. The the pants are tights. So sure, they're still tight and it's trendy because she's a young adult, but there is nothing exploitative or sexualized about I... the costume. And the only thing that is only decorative is the cape. I really appreciated the artist notes where it said, this is a leather jacket, not, not spandex. spandex. And it, it showed that typical, like, I mean, even spandex does not work the way that artists draw right. it. And spandex is not as form fitting that you can see the outline of everything the way that it's, it's drawn. And to see someone basically like, this is a leather jacket and this is how cloth works for reals. Yeah. We actually want to portray it as cloth not someone is fighting while being body painted right like, this it was this, just so refreshing for me <laughs> yeah no this i mean it, and it really the more i've talked it up the more i'm even more excited about it just because this is this is what you can hold up and point to both marvel and dc and say look you can tell she's got a figure you can tell she is a, 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 a fit young woman, and yet you don't feel sleazy looking at it. You don't look at it and go, but how does she fight in it? And there is no part of it that is exploitative. It is attractive without being slimy, and it expresses everything about branding and personality and characterization that you need to do with the costume in a way that isn't dumb-tarted. <laughs> yes. 
So the other thing that I'm excited about uh, this week is something entirely personal to me in that I did have about a 2,000-word RPG segment picked up by a RPG publisher to be released in a work later this year, probably a, a standalone later this year in PDF and then in actual physical print, possibly at some point, but definitely standalone sometime this year. And so I'm just I'm super excited that this is the year when I finally got a major piece of fiction submitted to a major contest. I got something on the web going, and I've I have actually gotten something that says, "Congratulations, you are an author." We always knew it in our hearts. Matt, Congratulations! Now you know it on paper. No, it's thank you. Great. Uh, Congratulations! I think that's great. I I plan on framing that first uh, yeah. that first check. After I deposit it, I'm not going to not deposit it. Take yeah, when, you, when I first it, yeah. read that, I, I had to double check. I was like, Matt, you fool, put the money in the bank. Yeah, and I was no. Like, I'm, oh, okay. He's going to keep the check after. I'm putting the money in the bank first. That That's going to pay for some drinks uh, at uh, after the reunion. Awesome. So that is my stuff in the middle. I guess for, uh, for me this week, it's uh, I've had kind of a trying week and. Uh, it's been uh, kind of difficult to stay positive, but uh, I think that that is what's inspiring me is the idea that you can always stay positive. And uh, there's always a uh, as, as cliched as it looks is look as there or as it sounds is there's always that silver lining. And uh, I've discovered over the past year that it's that's more and more true, at least for me, that there is always a silver lining, even if you uh, can't see it. And I'm getting a lot more uh, skilled at finding it and it's not corny it's actually there so um i guess staying positive is kind of what is keeping me afloat this week sometimes that's all you have and it's all you need yeah certainly on the need part for me it won't be relevant uh by the time this podcast comes out but we're running the kickstarter right now um and we had a really great launch week so we're up to just over uh, halfway to the goal so that's really exciting um and it's it's really nice to see people um reaching out and connecting and sharing that information so i'm as always exceptionally grateful to the people that help me uh spread the word because there's only so much one person can do and you really do have to have a team to make things happen as part of the team give us money damn it (laughs) Like I said, it won't be relevant by the time this this plays. So hopefully, right. uh, I haven't given us money. Damn it! I, I think you meant <laughs> yeah. please. Thank you. Also, but yeah, <laughs> I want to write this story for the collection. Tricksters, uh, Dream Eaters, totally true. I swear, Tricksters Tales. So it's a bit of a mouthful title, I'll admit. In the previous time space, have given us cash money <laughs> <laughs> to our infinite or something thanks. like that. Yeah. I, I, I have a good feeling about about it, um, but, you know, you never know until until the end, so we'll see. All right. Um, so who's the challenger and who's the challengees? It's like it's back to Robin giving us the prompt. Let's go with a noir gangster style scenario, but someone is turning into an actual monster. Interesting. All right. So a little supernatural, a little noir. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) 
As before, if you'd like to try your hand at writing your response to the spontaneous prompt, feel free to pause the recording right now, give yourself 10 minutes on the clock, and write the best opening sequence you can. We'd love to read your responses, so feel free to email them to info at mocopress.com and we'll share the ones that we get on the air. You can also go to the MoCo Press website, click on the page for this podcast, and post your responses in the comments below. Thanks so much, and we look forward to seeing your solution to this opening scene. The taste was always the worst part, Alec thought. The first sign was always a rush of saliva and a taste in his mouth like right before you threw up. It tasted like acid and pennies and blood, or maybe the last two were the same. The streets were dark the occasional functioning street lamp providing an island of isolation and false hope. Not many city repairmen came down to this part of the city in the best of times, awash in an epidemic of drugs and the pulsing corruption of a metropolis. And these weren't the best times. After all, there was a madman on the loose. But Alec wasn't here for the madman, or that's what he kept telling himself. He shoved the lit cigarette into his mouth and puffed furiously for the steadying nicotine rush. He shoved his hands into his pockets to quell the shaking, and puffing like a chimney, crept off into the night. She'd come to his office like an angel of hope, or a lusty succubus. Someday maybe he'd know. He doubted it. Either way, she was hot enough to have made a bishop smash a stained glass window at the Vatican, and he wasn't any kind of holy man. He'd have almost taken her case for free, but the landlord needed money, and Alec needed to keep up his healthy diet. Cheap scotch, cigarettes, and second-hand ramen noodles of dubious provenance. All the things a growing boy needs, he thought. Now if the back of his neck would just stop itching. He hated missing person cases, even from a woman with such great credit. But a missing sister plus $100 per diem plus expenses, and he told the woman he'd find the sister. He expected to find her shacking up with her coked-up ex-boyfriend or run away with some other paramour. He hadn't expected the blood or the violence or the smell, the chase, the hunt through the darkened streets like a forest under a full no, he shouted to himself, fumbling out his flask and taking a deep draw of the liquor store's greatest hits, so long as the hit was scotch and greatness was measured in how cheap he could get it. He doubted it had seen more of Scotland than a Wikipedia article, but he didn't give a damn. He was so close to finding her and getting that bonus, and maybe gratitude. He was so close to stopping just one senseless, awful, goddamn tragedy in this goddamn city. He just needed to find her and find who had her. And then he could taste the blood and copper and fear and sweet anguish. Then he could show the son of a bitch what should happen to people like him, to abusers and exploiters and darkness that made even nightmares shudder. Oh yes, he would find him. And under the brilliant white light of the moon, the blood would look like darkness itself. And he would howl. Ooh. I have a title for you. Okay. Hard Bitten. Oh. oh. Boom. <laughs> it's on the page. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I liked it. I mean, you went all out with the, the melodrama, but that's kind yeah, of noir I, for you. I went, like I said, I went really straight with the noir. I think I, I just hit the checklist of everything <laughs> a stereotypical uh, noir story needs. <laughs> I have two magnums. One I keep loaded and one keeps me loaded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about that level. Although I will admit, the little digression about the liquor store's greatest hits, so long as the hit was scotch and greatness was measured in cheap. I liked that. 
That would that my I I'm gonna keep that. Some my, of this might appear in in border just my, for the my favorite was uh, yeah, the the closest it ever been to Scotland was probably a glance Wikipedia. at a Wikipedia article. <laughs> that was awesome. I think my favorite was ramen noodles of dubious provenance. <laughs> so you got a lot of yeah. you got a lot of good pros there. Oh, all right. I suppose I should take a crack at this. Oh God! Here come the accents. <laughs> Oh, God. There are accents. <laughs> That's awesome. All yes. right. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, man, it's been so long since I've done Mob Boss. <clears throat> Guido, I swear this town has gone to the dogs. Wolves, boss. What was that, Guido? Werewolves, they're feral. Canis lupus lupus, not canis lupus familiaris. Did, did you just correct me, Guido? No, no, boss. I was just sharing a more accurate and exact truth. Don Scalieri looked down at the fishing net sprawled across his, the dock attached to his fishing warehouse. For weeks, he had been wondering how the Irish had been un- undercutting his imports. The answer lay at the bottom of the net. First it was werewolves, and now some mermaid is muscling in on my turf. Selkie. Guido, I swear I do not know what you are saying half of the time. It's a selkie, not a mermaid. You know, women who can turn into seals? No, Guido, I do not know. Do you know why? Because I am a God-fearing man. Well, so are they, boss. The Irish are just as Catholic as we are. I swear, when my father stepped off of the boat, we good, honest folks, we didn't have to worry about magic. These days, I can't walk to a Dodgers game without tripping over some pixie. It's all these damn immigrants. We're immigrants too, boss. Shut your mouth, Guido. The two stood in awkward silence for a moment, staring at the half-drowned sulky caught under the heavy net. Hey, boss. Guido, I do not want to hear it. I know, but boss... What is it, Guido? <laughs> I guess she really does sleep with the fishes. <laughs> That's wow. adorable. That's it. <laughs> I <laughs> told you. It's adorable. I want to see tentatively... this in like a, a high energy animation style. <laughs> My thing. accents were awful. I know I can do better than that. <laughs> I just I love the the casual way. In which he said, and now some mermaid is muscling in on my territory. (laughs) That's what absolutely made it for me. My working title is Mobsters. (laughs) I like monster, but mob. Right. I couldn't come up with a good pun there, so. Yeah, mom. That's that's tough on the tongue. Yeah. Mobsters. Mobsters. Yeah. Title needs work, but. I just liked the constant slight corrections. Yeah. Like, like, not just on, like, lore of the supernatural, but also, like, well, these people are also Catholic. And, like, uh. it's just his personality that he has to just, he's that guy in the room that has to be like, well, actually. That's right. I, but the technical term is. As long as we're being technical, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> So, our takeaways. Oh, yes. Our takeaways. I think my takeaway from this one is uh, uh, definitely that um, regardless of whether or not this makes it onto the page, it's definitely good to run through this exercise with your characters regardless because you definitely become much more familiar with your character by doing this. It, it forces you to be really uh, to really recognize what uh, makes them tick, what, what motivates them, and what, what kind of ways they can fail. The different ways in which they can break, which I really think is a, a very useful tool when you're when you're working with a new character or even an old one that you've evolved. That's my takeaway. 
for me, it's that uh, weaknesses change as strengths mature, but exploring weaknesses on a continual basis and revising them on a continual basis is a great means of keeping writing fresh for an author. I think the takeaway that I have from this is just a a reaffirmation to the idea that it is the most uncomfortable situations for your character that draw the most growth and that the reason we have characters, the reason we don't normally just throw archetypes at situations is so that we can have an understanding of what drives them to something and drives them away from something and that it is the purpose of fiction to throw characters at their most difficult problems so that we can see the fundamental truths of who they are. So, Matt, where can you find more of your work? You can find more of my work at the ongoing and occasionally read by more than just my dad, Border Kansas, at www.border-ks.com. And you can also come see me with Heroes of Rokugan, when this goes up, because I think it'll be up before Gen Con, at Gen Con. Excellent. My work is at leylinescomic.com and you can also find more of what Corey and I do together at mocopress.com and thank you so much to everyone that supported the Kickstarter uh, win or lose, whether it was funded or not, we greatly appreciate your support and your enthusiasm for the project. So hopefully it was fun, but even if it wasn't, you're still awesome. Music for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com.